What happens next? Are we ready for it? Disruption. Change. Risk. Opportunity. Welcome to the AFIRE podcast special series, The Future, part one. Post-COVID-19, is it the end of the world or is it the end of the world as we know it? Today, I'm speaking with the AFIRE Future Committee to separate fear from reality, chaired by the Holland Partner Group CEO, Clyde Holland, with committee members Martin Lamb, the Managing Director of Credit Suisse, Byron Carlock, the head of PwC's real estate practice, Brian Sanchez, CIO of Lionstone Investments, and Chris Merrill, the CEO of Harrison Street Real Estate. So let's start this discussion with Clyde. We hear a lot about how real estate is in trouble in this COVID world and where we might be having some difficulty as investors. Do you think this is the end of real estate? No, Gunner, real estate isn't going away. And in looking at the aspects of a post-COVID world, I think it's really important to step back and really look at the trends that we have been investing in and following really for the past several decades. The first is urbanization of the gateway cities and innovation centers and the concentration of the creative class and the advent of the knowledge economy. In those trends, we've seen a substantial increasing role of technology at an accelerating rate. We also have seen, for instance, in retail, the retail has moved more and more experiential in terms of um, how it was interfacing with the customers. Looking at the millennials and the millennial workforce, and as they come into the workforce, their, their desire to invest in experiences as opposed to things has really been another underlying trend. And then we got COVID. And COVID was for first, you know, as you point out, um, the first initial reaction was fear. And now we're all unpacking the reality of what it means to be in a post-COVID environment. Looking uh, forward and looking at where we are, what we're seeing is a very significant acceleration of the underlying trends that were really starting to happen pre-COVID and were increasing. And in order to look at some of those details, I thought it'd be great to have Byron Carlock um, really take us through what he sees as those emerging trends. Happily. Thank you so much, Clyde. Uh, We just debuted yesterday our Emerging Trends in Real Estate 2021 for the Urban Land Institute. And I think you're spot on. If you look at the last really 15 or 20 years of urbanization, this is really more of a recalibration that's been um, accelerated by COVID. And I'm going to point to several things that I think are interesting. And and people get scared by the fact that 5,000 households a a week seem to be vacating Manhattan. But in, the reality is the cities are not going away. They are they continue to be centers of culture and young talent, but we've over-densified. And so this is a breather to that reality. And there's been affordability in the suburbs that's now being tapped. And those people, those young couples especially, that are were on the fence about moving out to the suburbs have decided to do so. And so you've seen suburban real estate sales really spike with still proximity to the cities. And when we say the cities, I'm talking about the six major gateway cities of Boston, New York, D.C., Miami. Los Angeles and San Francisco. So the exodus from the very expensive urban core out to the suburbs had already started probably two and a half years ago. 
as a result of COVID. And frankly, back to COVID, I think it's here for us to deal with for some time. If you think about the flu shots that we've been taking for the last 30 years, those are still residual um, viruses from the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic. And we will probably have to adapt to that flu shot to include COVID elements, and we'll likely be taking it for many years to come. And the spikes being experienced around the world right now are telling us it's not yet a post-COVID world and all of it, and we're having to adapt. So what does that mean? It means that we're going to change the way we live for the time being and perhaps for longer term into the future. Working from home is going to be a longer term reality. That, and it's not an either or. It'll be some home, some office. So you still have to have proximity to the office. But if you need to live further out, that's okay. And you see some companies adapting with hub and spoke locations so that folks can drive to uh, suburban or further out locations and still have connectivity with a culture, with a system, with um, business planning, with uh, financial folks, with product demonstration and the opportunity for cultural inculcation, which I think I would argue is the hardest thing to do remotely. So all of these things are here for a while. And in the meantime, we see the acceleration of online retail, which has been uh, a necessity during the COVID quarantine. We see um, more reliance on systems such as this that we're speaking on now, Zoom, WebEx, Google Meets. Uh, we're seeing the need for improved cyber connectivity and the safety therein. And uh, all of these are appropriate adaptations to the climate that we're experiencing. Now, out of that, by the way, will come some great opportunities. We're seeing a tremendous demand for data centers, we're seeing a tremendous demand for life sciences real estate, which has historically been concentrated in markets like Cambridge, Massachusetts, and it's going mainstream into many other markets as pharmaceutical companies and inventors create alliances with important research colleges and universities. And the big winners in this remain industrial and logistics, and frankly, multifamily is holding up very nicely, um, despite uh, rent collection moratoriums and government intervention in landlords' ability to collect rents, uh, multifamilies holding up just fine. I'm going to I'm going to jump jump right in actually because it's something at Credit Suisse that we've obviously been speaking about you know back you know for, for for many years but certainly more since since March and you know mainly we invest in offices so we've been talking endlessly about you know will there still be a need offices. I'm just going to jump right in and, and say we believe, yes, there will be, but not every office has a reason for being in the, in the future. I can just briefly give you a kind of a pro argument and a, a con argument for that. The, the pro argument, the one that sticks with me often, is if you think sort of pre-COVID in the last 10 years, we've seen a huge rise in, in the freelancing economy. People wanted more freedom. Companies didn't employ so many people. So freelancing economy went through the roof in parallel with, with co-working, because where, where did these people work? They didn't work from home. A lot of them went to these shared offices. So in parallel with the rise of freelancing, we saw shared office space like Regis spaces we work, you know, we all know them. Um, so if there wasn't a need for the office, why would people go um, and actually pay quite a lot of money uh, to be in a workplace uh, where they probably didn't know many people, where they probably didn't interact with people? 
but they went there. It's not because of collaboration, we don't think. It's probably because they wanted to focus or it drives them. They needed routine. It was a free decision on their part. It's a conscious decision. Um, so that's my sort of pro argument. Um, people like to be in offices. They don't necessarily like always to be at home. Uh, but there are some offices that are just terrible. Uh, some offices that arguably are kind of inhumane. Um, you know, if you go there, some offices, you know, you see batteries of, of desks, people aren't speaking. Um, they have to commute there on a packed train for two hours. Um, they go up an elevator, sit behind their desk for eight hours. Um, and then at the end of the day, after sitting there for eight hours, sitting facing a screen with headphones, not speaking with anyone, they then get back in the elevator and sit on a train for another two hours uh, to go home. So in, in that sense, for me, it's not surprising companies will struggle to get people back into this environment uh, when they're now used to saving two hours of commute, staying at home with family, with friends. So for me, the question isn't, will there be offices in the future, but it's what type of offices and what do you offer there? Uh, where are those offices going to be? Uh, do they need to be in central London or central New York, or can they be more spread out? I think you also, you already mentioned, um, I think it was Eric Schmidt from Google who said they were thinking more of a hub and spoke system where you don't have one office in San Francisco for 10,000 people or even one campus, but you have neighborhoods around where rents are also lower and people are closer to their homes. So for us, the argument is more about kind of placemaking, offices with a great lobby, collaborative space, great amenity, um, and the a space that emphasizes, I guess, the culture, uh, and also most importantly, attracting talent. So for us at, at Credit Suisse, we, we certainly believe there is a future for, for offices, um, and we're, we're continuing to, uh, to invest, but it's all about what you deliver to those tenants and where you deliver it. These all sound like familiar trends. Uh, we've been talking about this for, for 10, 20 years. You know, and as we talk about COVID and, and, and to, to Byron's point, how do we create a when is a post-COVID world? How do we adapt to COVID as we go forward? What it sounds like you're saying is that it's not necessarily a change in terms of, of what's happening, but it might be a change in terms of speed of what's happening. Is that an accurate reflection? Yeah. So, so we like like a lot of people have seen COVID just um, speed up uh, what was going on um, uh, pre, you know, pre-COVID. Um, but what we're looking at more, rather than maybe just buying an office and refurbishing it and sticking a gym in there, um, you know, we're, we're, we're trying to do more. So we're looking more at design and architecture, you know, a lot more about amenity, the real type of amenity that people really use and work. I mean, I don't know how many times you've been through an office building, there is a gym and no one's in there. Do people really want a gym? Is there something else that they need? And it's all about for us looking at efficiency, flexibility, technology, connectivity, and importantly, I think wellness, sustainability, and, and operational performance. So I think it's got a lot more kind of nuanced and a lot more specific in, in what we are certainly looking at rather than just sticking in a bike rack and, and, and a gym. So Martin, in terms of looking at the office, tell me about what you see in terms of uh, split, work from home, work from the office. Do you see a trend in terms of the number of companies that are saying, we're going to have you work in the office two days a week, do the collaboration, get together, um, have the social aspect, and then have a portion of that time in terms of working from home? Yeah, we're, we're, we're seeing that a lot, a lot more kind of flexibility in what companies are offering to uh, to their um, 
to their workers, to their to their staff. I mean, at Credit Suisse, you know, I'm based here in New York. Um, we've been uh, the office has been closed since March. We're we're only going back in a two week. Uh, rotation uh, at the beginning of, of November. And we're, we're seeing that, I think, with, with most companies, this sort of two-week rotation or offering staff the ability to choose. Um, and, and I think what we're hearing is actually, yes, there's a lot of conversations about do we need as much space, but equally there's a lot of conversations about, well, we probably need the same amount of space, but we just need to design it differently. And a lot of it is to do with uh, company culture. You, you've got to create a company culture, particularly for younger staff that are coming through. You know, you can't create any culture if you've got a, a new kid coming in who is working from home and only meets their boss and their team, you know, once a month. That That is just not going to work. Um, so a lot of the conversation is about just providing that kind of flexibility and not necessarily um, taking less space, just using that space differently, more efficiently and, and more attractively. So COVID has essentially tightened our thinking and, and, and really forced us to think in a more nuanced way and certainly how the office works. Now, Brian Sanchez at Lionstone, you've been talking about uh, living, working, playing all in the same place. And you're seeing an acceleration of that trend uh, as well in a COVID, post-COVID world. Can you give us some color around that, Brian? Yeah, I think a common theme here is that COVID is accelerating many of the the trends that were underway beforehand. And, and we wholeheartedly agree with that. And one of the trends that was underway before was a real desire for sustainability. And by sustainability, we of course mean environmental sustainability, but we actually mean something beyond that, more along the lines of, of wellness, as Martin was speaking of. And what people don't want to do anymore is, uh, especially those people who are highly skilled and in demand, is they don't want to commute for two hours on a train and work uh, in an inflexible way for eight hours and then go home. That is just inconsistent with what highly productive people want to do. And one of the things that makes all of this possible is the structural changes to our economy. Now that we are moving forcefully into the digital economy, the key ingredient in the digital economy is talent. And that is a major difference from the industrial economy where Many of the key ingredients were, for example, raw materials that you could turn into a manufactured good. So if the raw, if the, the key input is talent, talent is going to really decide how the built environment needs to work. And, and, and that talent wants a lifestyle that well, we like to call it a 20 minute lifestyle where everything in your life is within 20 minutes of, of every other element of it. And that 20 minutes could be by car, it could be by walking, it could be by train. Uh, in fact, it better that it be multimodal. Um, and, and so the built environments that we want to invest in are, are those communities that, that really uh, facilitate that type of lifestyle. So I guess that means that real estate has to pay closer attention to how and where people are living their lives, that maybe our focus should be on more than just a good building and a good location. I, I want to hear right now from Chris Merrill and his perspective, um, as we talk about the real impact of COVID-19, the fear of the moment seems to be focused on the way the very young in schools and colleges and the very old in senior and assisted living facilities 
are faring. As an investor in these areas, Chris, could you give us a picture of the reality versus the fear in those spaces right now? Yeah, at Harrison Street, our focus is, has always been on demographic real estate, and that's what we've been doing for about 15 years. So uh, we have a, an interesting perspective uh, being the largest private owner of, of off-campus student housing and one of the larger private owners of senior housing, a few of our asset classes um, alongside medical office, life science, et cetera. But, you know, it's interesting when we when we think about, you know, March, April time period, there was a, a lot of concern. What did this mean for uh, the education model? Um, what was going to happen to seniors in these facilities? And, you know, for us, this is sort of the second black swan event we've been through as a firm. We saw how these asset classes performed during the global financial crisis and now during this pandemic. And the first thing we've done, and I think what's been quite um, energizing to us, I guess, is the, the data that's come out of the portfolio. You know, 78,000 beds that we have for students, uh, Not uh, we're not seeing any COVID-related uh, deaths, you know, thank you. Thank goodness. Um, we're also seeing this school year start with those beds being full, that kids are going back to school. The online education model uh, has been sort of debunked. Uh, it really doesn't work. Kids don't like the model. Educators don't like the model. There might be some um, component of that, but the college experience isn't going away, going away. And so even with schools that are fully online now, we're seeing kids go back to campus. They don't want to be in mom's basement anymore. And they like the fact that there's purpose-built, bed-bath parity, high-quality uh, assets. Uh, so for us, we've seen that, you know, this has reinforced that the college experience is, is here to stay. Now, uh, the devil's in the details in terms of this is going to be very hard on some schools. So as Moody's has said, you know, 5 to 15% of the schools will probably fail, unfortunately, because of the difficult, the difficult that this will prove to their balance sheet. So you have to make sure you're aligned yourself to the right university. So positive uh, is that, uh, again, kids are going back to school. What we're seeing is even in some cases where there's outbreaks of COVID at these universities, I think I've seen stats of 50 to 70,000 uh, college-age kids have gotten COVID. Very few, if any, hospitalizations have you seen. So that, to us, helps to alleviate some of the fear. Uh, you know, the other thing is in the senior housing space, you know, again, a lot of fear, a lot of headlines. What's this mean to senior housing? And um, Again, when you peel back the onion and look at the details, uh, unfortunately, the death has been more in the skilled nursing um, side of things. Uh, it's been more in the Medicaid uh, and also um, uh, people coming from the home. Uh, what you're seeing is actually good quality, independent, assisted memory care assets are able to provide a, a, a very safe place for the residents. They deal with infectious diseases every year. Uh, so they're able to sort of, if you like, lock down the facilities, control who comes in and out versus, you know, a parent uh, in their home with a home health worker who might work at six or seven different families and you really can't control who comes in and out. So we've seen, you know, very, very low percentages of, of COVID-related passings at our properties. And in those cases, it was typically, you know, the, 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 the people had sort of two to three other comorbidities. So what we're, what we're seeing is that people are, you know, concerned about, second waves. Um, we're seeing people wanting to get their parents into these facilities um, as a way to protect their, their, their loved ones. So from us, we've been able to take that data and that helps to, I think, alleviate a lot of the fear in people within our ecosystem to say, look at, 
forget, forget what you're seeing in the newspaper, forget what you're seeing in the media, look at the raw data. And the raw data and doesn't support some of the fear that's out there. And I think that that's what energizes us. And, you know, we've seen, you know, strong performance in our life science and our medical office assets. And uh, so, you know, one needs to sort of look at the silver linings uh, with, 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 with this, this period of time. And I think for the real estate space, uh, there are going to be a lot of positives that come out of this. And um, so I think that, that's what we've tried to do as a firm is really make decisions based on data. You know, we've got, we've invested over $35 billion in these asset classes. So we've just got a lot of data. And I think that helps alleviate a lot of the fear and that helps us think about investing going forward. Thank you, Chris. We're going to have to pause right here. If you're interested in listening to more of this discussion, make sure you tune in again for part two of our special future series focused on the urban exodus. And before we go, I wanted to make sure I made a special thank you to our 2020 underwriters, Holland Partners, JLL, and Prologis. Thank you for helping to make all our programming at AFIRE in 2020 possible. This podcast is produced by AFIRE, the Association for International Real Estate Investors focused on commercial property in the United States. AFIRE is not engaged in providing tax, accounting, or legal advice through this podcast. None of the content is to be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell any asset. Some information included in this podcast may have been obtained from third-party sources considered to be reliable, though AFIRE is not responsible for guaranteeing the accuracy of third-party information. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of its respective contributors and sources and do not necessarily reflect those of AFIRE.